Welcome. You're listening to Conversations, a Park Church podcast, and the production of Park First Congregational United Church of Christ in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Park Church is a community where everyone is welcome, where the diversity of God's creation is celebrated. Join us each week in conversation as we grow closer to God, to each other, and to our Christian faith. Hello, I'm John Proper, Director of Adult Education at Park Church. In this week's episode of Conversations, we have extended live audio of Dr. Craig Vandermoss, Senior Deacon at Park Church, giving a lecture, the first of two parts, on the evolution of the Bible and next week on the evolution of religion. This week's episode, the first part, concentrates heavily on the evolution of the Bible. What is this sacred text? Where did it come from? And how does it influence us today? This lecture series is based on the first two of seven books projected by Dr. Vandermoss, dealing with the evolution of various spiritual themes, including the Bible, religion as an impulse, and many more. Please join us on Sunday, October 1st at 11.45 a.m. as we enjoy a complimentary lunch Listen to the second part of this presentation on the evolution and syncretism of religion, Dr. Vandermoss's second book, and stick around to pick up a copy of that book yourself, get it signed by Dr. Vandermoss, and ask him questions about his presentation. In the meantime, enjoy this audio from presentation one, and God bless. Dr. Craig Vandermoss. Thank you, John. Um, so I think that ever since junior high school, I had a deep desire to see the big picture of life understand the meaning of life, if you will, it was and is an ongoing process and has required a lot of research in the many disciplines. One of the earliest influences in my conception of the meaning of life has been my Christian and specifically Calvinist background. I particularly was taught that the Bible was the one and only Word of God. In Sunday school, catechism on Wednesday nights, in Bible classes in my Christian school, I learned about what was in the Bible. However, I learned very little about where the Bible actually came from. I've now learned a lot about this and I'd like to share it with you. This is information that seminary students will learn in mainline seminaries, but unfortunately few lay people learn about. One might ask why a psychologist would be writing about the history of the Bible, and that's a good question. Actually, this is part of a proposed seven-volume series entitled An Integral and Evolutionary Worldview, and history is actually a relatively small portion of the entire series. Much of the series will be based on psychology in particular, neurobiology, areas that I do have advanced degrees in. So the first thing I like to do is review the time periods that the Bible covers before getting into when the Bible was actually written. first time period covered in the book of Genesis might be termed primeval, meaning earliest ages of the world, or antediluvian, which means before the flood. Prior to the reported great flood, people were said to have lived for hundreds of years. Methuselah, for example, reportedly lived 969 years. These long lives were common in the midst of societies throughout the Middle East, including Mesopotamia, the birthplace of civilization, and the birthplace of the patriarch Abraham. There are many myths about the creation of the world in the ancient Middle East. In fact, in the book of Genesis are two separate creation myths. 
So in Genesis 1, in the beginning was a watery uh, chaos. And in Genesis 2 to 3, the world was a rainless landscape. In Genesis 1, animals are created before humans. And in Genesis 2 to 3, the first human is made, then animals. Genesis 1, humans are created male and female. In Genesis 2 to 3, woman is formed from man's rib. In Genesis 1, there's no mention of a Garden of Eden, no mention of a tree of life, no mention of a tree of knowledge, no mention of disobedience, and no mention of divine punishment. In Genesis 2 to 3, there's no mention of the seven days. So the two actual completely different creation stories. There are also many stories about a worldwide flood in the ancient Middle East. There are flood stories from ancient Mesopotamia that predate the story of Noah and the flood by a thousand years. In the myth about Gilgamesh from Mesopotamia, there's a story about a great flood. The gods had met in council and decided to destroy humankind with a deluge. However, Utnap Ishtam was warned by the god Ea of the plan and was advised to make a giant boat to house him and his family and also the seed of every living creature. When the storm came, the gods climbed as high as they could on mountains to escape the waters. Eventually, the boat came to rest on a mountaintop. After seven days, Udnapishtim released a dove. Because it could not find a place to alight, it returned to the boat. Later, Udnapishtim made it to dry land. He made a sacrifice to the gods, and the famished gods came to the altar. The god Enlil was furious that anyone escaped death with a flood. The god Ea criticized Enlil for creating the flood in the first place and said all of humankind were not deserving of death. He suggested plagues, wolves, and famine should be used to kill only the people deserving of death, rather than killing off the whole human race. Obviously, there are many similarities in this story with the story of Noah and Genesis in the Bible, written many centuries later. God saw the wickedness of mankind and regretted that he ever created humans. He decided to destroy every living thing on earth. However, God found favor with Noah a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He told Noah to build a giant ship that would hold specimens of every species of animal on earth. In chapter 6 of Genesis, his instructions are two of every kind, but in chapter 7, it is seven pairs of every kind. The flood came and Noah, his family, and the animals were safe on the ark, but every other living creature was destroyed. When the flood waters subsided, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Noah sent out a raven. It had no place to alight. He then sent out a dove. It could find no place to alight and return to the boat. Seven days later, he sent out another dove. This dove returned with a freshly plucked olive leaf, and so Noah knew that the waters had subsided. Then seven days later, he sent out another dove that did not return. When the earth was dry, the ark was evacuated. Noah built an altar to God and offered sacrifices. God smelled the pleasing odor of the sacrifice and made the promise never to destroy the living world again. 
In Mesopotamia, there were many, many uh, examples found of this ancient flood story. Next period would call the patriarchal period. This is the period of the great patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. During this period of human history, there were no religious laws, no prayer, no hymns. Religion consisted of making sacrifices to the gods in order to gain favor or to atone for misdeeds. Human sacrifices occurred during this time period, likely including to the god Yahweh. I write quite extensively about this in my second book. In Genesis is the famous story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham is willing to comply, but God stops him, and Abraham sacrifices a ram instead. Next period is the Egyptian period. The offspring of the patriarchs lived in the land of Egypt for 430 years. Because of their increasing numbers, the pharaoh became concerned about them and put out an order to have Israelite male babies killed. One of these babies was saved. His name became known as Moses. The story of Moses' beginnings is very similar to that of the great Akkadian king, Sargon the Great, who lived between 2334 and 2279 BCE. Sargon's beginnings are related on an ancient Sumerian tablet. Sargon was said to be the illegitimate son of a temple priestess of the goddess Inanna. Sargon's mother bore him in secret and placed him in a basket of reeds, sealed the basket's lid with pitch, and cast the basket adrift on the Euphrates River. He was found by a man named Aki, who was the gardener for Uzababa, the king of the Sumerian city of Kish. Aki raised Sargon. Legend has it that he rose to power by winning the favor of the goddess Ishtar. Compare this to the story of Moses, written over a thousand years later, whose mother bore him, hid him for three months, and then got a papyrus basket for him, which was lined with pitch. She placed Moses in it and placed the basket among the reeds on the bank of the river. Moses was discovered by the Pharaoh's daughter who raised him. Later, Yahweh chose him to lead the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. In the Exodus story, we have the famous parting of the Red Sea by Moses in which the Egyptians, who were in pursuit of the Israelites, died when the seas came crashing in on them. The Hebrew term for the body of water that was crossed is Yam Suf, which literally means Sea of Reeds. It was the Greek version of scripture, the Septuagint, that translated this to the Red Sea rather than the Reed Sea. This may explain the miracle. The Israelites escaped through the marshes and the Egyptian chariots got stuck in the mud. Next we have the tribal period. After the Israelites came to the land of Canaan, the 12 tribes split up the land between them. During this time period, the Israelites were governed by judges. They were not actually judges in the modern sense of the term. Actually, they were military leaders. Next period is the Davidic kingdom. Eventually, the people requested a king to rule like the other kingdoms that surrounded them. 
The first king was Saul, then David, then Solomon. This slide depicts the greeting of the Queen of Sheba by King Solomon. After the death of Solomon, the northern ten tribes rebelled against the rule of his son Rehoboam and formed a new kingdom called Israel. The two kingdoms coexisted until 722 BCE when the kingdom of Assyria conquered Israel and dispersed its peoples throughout the Assyrian Empire. These would be the lost ten tribes. They were incorporated in the Assyrian general population. My impression had always been that Judah was the more important of the two kingdoms. It included the city of Jerusalem, had the one and only temple to Yahweh, and was portrayed in the Hebrew scriptures as being the more righteous of the two kingdoms in regards to its devotion to Yahweh. However, archaeologist Israel Finkelstein maintains from archaeological evidence that actually the northern kingdom of Israel was by far the more affluent. To use U.S. states as an analogy, uh, Israel might have been California and Judah was Alabama. <laughs> 125 years later, after the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians. Several thousand of the most important citizens of Jerusalem were brought to Babylon in exile. The prophet Ezekiel was among them. Ten years later, Jerusalem was again attacked by the Babylonians. This time, Solomon's temple was destroyed. More of the elite citizens of Judah were exiled to Babylon. Five years later, there were yet more deportations. In 539, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeated the Babylonians. Cyrus decreed that the Judeans and other exiled peoples could return to their homelands. A minority of the Jewish people returned to the kingdom of Judah. The majority, however, remained in Babylon. They had homes, families, and new lives there. Cyrus encouraged those who returned to Judah to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, which was done. Cyrus was referred to in scripture as God's anointed. In 331, the Greeks under Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire. Not only did the Greeks politically control that part of the world, but they also changed it culturally. This was known as Hellenization. Greek culture, language, and ideas transformed many peoples, including the Jewish people. Greek became the dominant language in the area. The entire New Testament was written in Greek. This is a period of time that many of us know little about. This is the time period between the Old and the New Testaments. A revolt by the Jewish people took place due to Jews being prohibited from practicing their religion. A Greek gymnasium and stadium were built in Jerusalem, and a statue to a foreign deity, perhaps Baal, was installed in the temple. This pushed the Jewish people over the edge and they revolted. They gained control over Jerusalem, and in 164 BCE, they purified and rededicated the temple. This event is still commemorated today as Hanukkah. 
This began a period of self-rule once again, which was known as the Hasmonean rule. So from 110 to 63 BCE, Israel was an independent kingdom again. In 63 BCE, Palestine was conquered by the Roman general Pompey. Herod the Great was made king of the Jews and reigned from 40 to 4 BCE. Herod was made king by Roman decree and was not of the Davidic line. Uh, he also had no links to the monarchy of the Hasmoneans. During this time, Octavian, who was Julius Caesar's adopted son, became emperor. He became known as Caesar Augustus. While Rome's influence had been expanding since the 6th century BCE, the Roman Empire, as we understand it, began with Caesar Augustus. Julius Caesar was decreed a god, and so Caesar Augustus was known as the son of God and later was made God himself by Roman decree. This is a coin from that time period declaring Augustus as divine son of God. So that's the periods that the Bible covers. So when were the books of the Bible actually written? Um, first five books of the Bible have been tra traditionally known as the books of Moses and have traditionally been attributed to Moses. However, biblical scholars are generally agreed that they were not written by Moses. Not only is there no evidence to support a claim that they were written by Moses, but there is evidence to reject such a claim. First of all, Moses never identifies himself as the author. In Deuteronomy, Moses' death and burial were described, making it unlikely that Moses was the writer of his own death and burial. The books were not written in first-person narrative, also suggesting that someone else was the author. Uh, so, for example, it might say, then Moses answered, rather than, than I answered. These are historical details. There are historical details in the books that would have happened much later in history. For example, the Philistines are mentioned, and they would have not arrived in Palestine until at least the century after the time of Moses. In Genesis 36:31, it says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. This suggests that the author of the books knew, was aware that eventually there would be kings of Israel. during the periods of the divided kingdoms of Judah and Israel that the first books of the Bible were written. Many scholars believe there were five principal authors of these books. They are known as the Yahweh source, signified by J, the Elohist source, E, the Deuteronomist, D, the writer of the Holiness Code, H, and the priestly source, P. This was articulated as the documentary hypothesis by Julius Wellhausen, a German historian. It's called a hypothesis because we do not have any of these actual early manuscripts, and we only hypothesize that they existed. This is deduced because it is evident to biblical scholars that the style and content of various passages in these books are very different from each other. 
If you've ever read the Torah straight through, you probably notice the many redundancies and contradictions. Reading said, haven't I just read all this? It's, it just doesn't flow. The early source is thought to be the Yahweh source. You may wonder why it's signified with a J. The reason is that Yahweh is spelled in German as Jahwe, J-A-H-W-E, hence a J. The Yahweh source wrote down stories that had been passed down orally for many generations. Scholars believe J was written in the 9th or 10th centuries BCE and originated in the area of the southern kingdom of Judah. God is called Yahweh and is very anthropomorphic. For example, he's able to walk in the Garden of Eden and he particularly enjoys pleasing odors, which is said very often in the uh, Old Testament. The other early source is the Eloist, E. God is called Elohim by this source and it is believed to have originated in the northern part of Israel. Scholars believe it was written in the 9th or 8th centuries BCE. Elohim is much less anthropomorphic than the God of the Yahwist. Again, the material for the narratives of the Elohist comes from generations of orally transmitted stories. Many scholars believe the J and E sources were combined in the 7th century after the fall of the Northern Kingdom. The P or priestly source emphasizes rituals and religious observances such as dietary laws, circumcision, and Sabbath observance. P concerns itself with genealogies. The God of P is even more remote and transcendent than the God of E. Most of the priestly source likely was written in the 6th century. The last major source for writings in the Torah is the Deuteronomist. The writer is responsible for the content found in the book of Deuteronomy. Scholars believe the book likely originated in the northern kingdom of Israel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers were written primarily by J, E, and P. Deuteronomy was written by the Deuteronomistic historians. It is not known whether the Deuteronomistic historian was written by a single author or compiler, or if it was written by a group of writers who shared an ideology. The primary aim of the Deuteronomistic historians was to show contemporaries during the time of the Babylonian exile that their sufferings were the result of centuries of not following Yahweh and the Deuteronomistic law. God did not fail the Jewish people. It was the Jewish people who had failed God. Although the Deuteronomistic history likely came together around 562 after the fall of Judah, many who believe that it was written by a school rather than an individual think its beginnings may have been in the northern kingdom of Israel. Ancient traditions preserved by northern prophets came to the southern kingdom of Judah after Israel's fall. An early form of the book of Deuteronomy may have been written during King Hezekiah's reign. During the reign of King Josiah, approximately a half century later, a book of the law was discovered in the temple in 2 Kings 22.8. It's written about. Josiah used this to reform Judah. At this point, the Deuteronomistic school was revived. There were additional writings over the years and editing. The final form of the Deuteronomistic history likely was during the Babylonian exile.
So these four sources plus H, uh, the Holiness Code is uh, chapters 17 to 26 of Leviticus, are believed to have been combined during the Babylonian exile. So here's a uh, from Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3, after returning from the ex exile. This is the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. All the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is the first time that any book of law is mentioned in the Bible. It was during the divided kingdoms that the first books of the Bible were written. Scholars believe that the books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings are actually comprise a single literary unit. The other writings listed here are books of prophets. Prophets were common in the ancient Near East, including with the Israelite people. They were known to be individuals who had special abilities that came from the divine. Their function was to relay messages from God to be critics of society and to predict the future. Many Christians don't know that the book of Isaiah is actually believed to be the composite of three different prophets. First Isaiah prophesied in Jerusalem during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and was a contemporary of Micah. Chapters 1 through 39 for the most part are attributed to first Isaiah. Chapters 40 to 55 are attributed to 2nd Isaiah, also known as Deutero-Isaiah. Chapters 56 to 66 are attributed to Trito-Isaiah. Chapters 40 to 55 of 2nd Isaiah cover a time period during the Babylonian exile. Chapters 56 to 66 of Trito-Isaiah cover a time period between 520 and 515 when people have returned from exile to Judah. The messages of 1st Isaiah included predictions of divine punishment for social uh, inequalities and injustices. 1st Isaiah said that religious ritual was not of prime importance, and the importance of social justice was stressed. This was the main message of prophets at this time. This time period, from uh, 800 to 200 BCE, became known as the Axial Age and I'll talk more about this extremely important period next week. Second Isaiah was the first voice to clearly and unambiguously state that Yahweh was the only God. This is the first time that it's stated in the Bible that Yahweh is not the, only the God to be worshipped, but is the only God. The Israelites were henotheistic, not monotheistic. Although it was stressed to worship only the God Yahweh, they still did believe in other gods. Monotheism developed over time. The first of the Ten Commandments state, you shall have no other gods before me. It's not that there aren't other gods, but Yahweh needs to be number one.
books of Lamentations and Ezekiel were written during the Babylonian exile. Lamentations is a collection of reactions to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. Ezekiel was an unusual character, prone to some bizarre behaviors. There's been suggestions that he may have had a seizure disorder with schizophrenic. Ezekiel believed the Babylonian exile and the destruction of Jerusalem were deserved punishments for adultery, ritual, impurity, and violence. These were writings composed during the Persian period. First and Second Chronicles was originally a single book. It covers the period all the way back to Adam and up to the return of exiles to Judea, although its main focus is on the events covered in First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. It was written in the late Persian period, and it's a revisionist history in which the Davidic kings were idolized. So in Kings, you hear about all the bad things that King David did. None of that is in Chronicles. They got rid of all that nasty stuff. Latest writings in the Hebrew Scripture were Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Daniel. Some of these books, for example, Lamentations, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes were very similar to much earlier written Mesopotamian writings. I discussed this in the second book and we'll talk about it next week. Many of these other writings listed here were part of the Apocrypha. And it's not really showing everything on the slide. So also on the slide here should be listed first and second Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, the Wisdom of Solomon, The Wisdom of Ben Sirah, Enoch, and Jubilees. Uh, so the Apocrypha was the second canon of literature that was not part of the Hebrew canon, but was part of the Christian canon, both the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches. The Reformers removed them from the Protestant Bible at the time of the Reformation. Although the book of Enoch was not part of the Apocrypha, it was an important book, and it was mentioned in the book of Jude, which is in the New Testament. So these are the books of the Apocrypha that were in the Roman Catholic Bible and the Eastern Orthodox Bible. And these are the books that are in the Hebrew Bible. So there's the books of law, the books of the prophets, former prophets, latter prophets, minor prophets, and the writings included the poetical books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and those five rules there, and then the historical books. Take this opportunity to mention the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. These scrolls were discovered in a cave by accident in 1947 by a shepherd boy in Qumran near the western shore of the Dead Sea. There are at least partial copies of every book in the Hebrew Scriptures, with the exception of the Book of Esther. What makes this find remarkable and valuable is that these writings were nearly a thousand years older than any biblical writings we had previously possessed. Generally speaking, the earlier the manuscript, the more likely it is to be closest to the original writings. So it was a huge find, thousand years. 
Many people believe the books of the Bible are listed in the order in which they were written, and this is not true. According to theologian Marcus Borg, uh, this is the order that the New Testament books were written. Uh, you can see that the earliest books were the seven letters of the Apostle Paul. So this information comes from Marcus Borg's book, 11, uh, Evolution of the Word. So it's these seven books, these first early ones, that are believed undisputedly letters of Paul. The authorship of Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians is in dispute, and most biblical scholars are in agreement that 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus were not written by Paul. We don't know who. Paul did follow the teachings of Jesus. You can see similarities in what they both said. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. Paul said, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Paul said, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Whereas Paul said, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Two major criticisms of Paul. It's his views on slavery and his views on women. Uh, the... The objectionable passages uh, come from First and Second Timothy and Titus, however. Those are the, the uh, three books that I mentioned earlier were not written by Paul himself. In regards to slavery, in Titus, the writer says, tell slaves to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. They're not to talk back, not to pilfer, but to show complete and perfect fidelity so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God, our Savior. So, all in favor of slavery. That the Paul of the letter to Philemon shows a much more compassionate person who encourages his Christian brother Philemon to take back his slave Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. In regards to the role of women, in the genuine letters of Paul, he presents as quite egalitarian. Although he says that wives have responsibilities to their husband, he also says that husbands have equal responsibilities to wives. He talks about many women who are active and leaders in the early Christian church, including, quote, our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at uh, Century. In this chapter of Romans, Paul goes on to praise other members of the church. Ten of the 27 mentioned are women. 
Junia, one of those mentioned, was said to be prominent among the apostles. In contrast, the writer of the letter of Timothy says, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. So very different viewpoints. Well, I was hoping my notes would be on here. Now I got something that's very small written, so let's see if I can uh, make this out here. The earliest narrative gospel to have been written is believed to have been the Gospel of Mark. It's believed to have been written by a Greek-speaking Christian about 35 to 40 years after Jesus' death. All of the New Testament was written in Greek. The author apparently heard stories about Jesus that had been circulating orally and he wrote them down. Mark's gospel has no stories about Jesus' birth or early years, does not include the Lord's Prayer, and does not include many of Jesus' best-known parables. The gospel originally ended at chapter 16, verse 8, where it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, found Jesus' tomb empty. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is where Mark's gospel ends. Because this ending seemed unsatisfying to many, new endings were added in later centuries. A longer version, verses 9 to 20, was added in the late 2nd century. In this ending, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, then to two disciples who were walking in the country, and then to the 11 disciples. A shorter ending to replace this longer edition was added in the 4th century. Although the Gospel of Mark is the earliest narrative account we have of the life of Jesus, there's believed to be an even earlier writing that gives us sayings of Jesus, a hypothetical book known as Quell or Q. The word Quell comes from the German word for source. It's hypothetical because we have not discovered the actual book. The reason it is believed to have existed, however, is that there are passages in both Matthew and Luke that are so identical that they must have come from the same source. It would be like reading articles about an event in two different newspapers, and each article contains paragraphs that are word for word the same. The reason is that both articles are using portions taken, for example, from the Associated Press. There are a lot of similarities between three of the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. Both Matthew and Luke appear to have had access to both Mark and Q and used these sources in the composition of their Gospels. Both Matthew and Luke also added other information in their Gospels that was not part of either Mark or Q. Thus, there appears to have been four sources that contributed to the Synoptic Gospels. Mark, Q, M for Matthew's special source, and L for Luke's special source. Some of the most important and memorable passages in the Gospels appear to have come from Q. They include the Beatitudes, the command to love one's enemies, the command not to judge others, and the Lord's Prayer. 
Like the other Gospels, John was written anonymously. Although tradition ascribes the book to John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' disciples, biblical scholars are confident it was not. As with the other Gospels in the canon, the author does not name himself. It was not believed to have been ascribed to disciple John until the end of the second century. Also, John was said to have been illiterate. Uh, quote, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus, coming from Acts 4.13. John is believed by scholars to have been written around 90 to 95 CE, likely the last of the four Gospels of the canon to have been written. John's very much different than the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, known together as the Synoptics. There are many stories in John not found in the Synoptic Gospels, and many of the well-known stories of the other three Gospels are not found in John, including stories about Jesus' birth, his baptism, his preaching about the coming kingdom of God, casting out of demons, any parables, the transfiguration before some of the disciples, and the institution of the Lord's Supper. John tells us that Jesus existed along with God, the Father, since the beginning of time, only in John, the last of the Gospels to be written, is Jesus unambiguously God. There are many Christian Gospels that did not make it into the New Testament canon. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do appear to be the earliest written Gospels, with perhaps the exception of the Gospel of Thomas, which may have, been, which may have predated all of them. All were written long after Jesus lived and died, there likely were earlier written narratives of Jesus, however, that did not survive. Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, notes that, quote, many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events, including from eyewitnesses. Listed are some other gospels uh, that have survived to this day that did not make it into the canon, although they were considered scripture, and they were used by many Christian communities. Many were discovered only in the past century in the Nag Hammadi Library, which was discovered in 1945. The Gospel of Thomas is not a narrative gospel, but is a collection of the sayings of Jesus. There's 114 in all. It was discovered in the Nag Hammadi Library in 1945, completely preserved. The author gives his name as Didymus Judas Thomas. This is the person many Syrian Christians believe was the twin brother of Jesus. It was probably written in the early 2nd century, although some scholars have dated it as early as 50 CE. More than half of the sayings of the Gospel of Thomas can be found in the Synoptic Gospels, and so many of the other sayings are novel to modern ears. Most of the verses begin with, Jesus said. This book does not mention Jesus' miracles, death, or crucifixion. What matters in this book are the teachings of Jesus. A primary emphasis is a description of what Jesus said about the coming kingdom of God. The Gospel of Judas Iscariot was likely written in the middle of the second century. It was known to the church father Arrhenius writing in 180, but it's not been known to readers since that time until it was discovered in 1978 south of Cairo in Egypt. It focuses on Jesus' last days on earth, and in this Gospel, Judas is not the villain, but is working on behalf of Jesus. Judas is the disciple who's most superior. 
Jesus tells him, You will exceed all of them, for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. Jesus' death allows Jesus to leave his bodily shell, which has entrapped his spiritual self. It is not the death of Jesus which brings salvation. In this gospel, there is no physical resurrection of Jesus' body. The body is perceived as evil. I believe that Reverend Fetty did a presentation on this gospel a few years ago. The infancy gospel of Thomas was discovered near Hagnamati and has been dated as early as 125 CE. It tells the story of Jesus as a child from the ages of 5 until 12 when he was teaching in the temple. The book starts with the story of Jesus at the age of 5 making birds out of clay on the Sabbath. He's chastised by someone who sees him and then by his father Joseph for profaning the Sabbath. Jesus responds by clapping his hands, making the birds come to life. As a child, Jesus has a very bad temper. In one incident, a child ran and banged into his shoulder. Jesus was aggravated and said to him, you will go no further on your way. By the way, the child fell down and died. As time goes on, however, Jesus matures and starts to use his supernatural powers for good. Other writings not included in our New Testament canon were also used as scripture by various early Christian communities. Many of these writings were attributed to Jesus' disciples. One of these writings is the Acts of Paul. Like Luke's book of Acts, this is an account of Paul's travels. There's one particularly remarkable tale in this book. In Ephesus, Paul is thrown to the lions. He recognizes the lion that comes upon him as one he previously baptized. He asks the lion if he is the one, and the lion replies that he is. The governor then sends other beasts to attack Paul, but a violent hailstorm comes on that saves both Paul and the baptized lion. If you think it's ridiculous to have a story about a talking lion, remember that in the book of Numbers, in the canonical Old Testament, there is a talking donkey. There's tremendous diversity in beliefs among the various groups of people who called themselves Christians during the first couple centuries of the Common Era. <clears throat> Over the centuries since, people mistakenly believed that Christianity started off with a pure set of beliefs, the teachings of Jesus, which were uh, disseminated by his disciples and then by other generations of church leaders. It was believed that only over time did heresies or false teachings infiltrate the church. This was the view taught by Eusebius. Uh, actually, early Christian beliefs were extremely diverse. There's great diversity even within the New Testament canon. The German scholar Walter Bauer and other scholars found that in the earliest Christian centers of Syria, Egypt, Asia Minor, and Rome, heretical forms, so-called heretical forms of Christianity were in evidence even before what is now known as orthodox forms. It was only over centuries that this orthodox or proto-orthodox view won out. The views of the Roman church eventually won out over a wide variety of other Christianities. Three early groups of Christians whose beliefs did not win out were the Ebionites, 
the Marcionites and the Gnostics. The Ebionites were a group of Jewish Christians who strictly followed Jewish laws, such as circumcision, kosher food, Sabbath observance. They believed that Jesus was the most righteous man to have lived, and because of this was adopted by God to be his son. It became his mission as God's son to die for the sins of mankind. It was no longer necessary to make sacrifices of animals after this. Jesus was rewarded by being raised from the dead. They stressed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and that any Gentiles who wanted to be right with God needed to become Jewish and observe all of the Jewish laws. They believed that Jesus was fully human and not divine. Joseph and Mary were his parents. These groups of Christians were not followers of Paul. It is thought by scholars that they used as scripture a gospel very similar to the gospel of Matthew uh, and another uh, gospel known as the Gospel of the Ebionites. The group was associated with James, the brother of Jesus. The Marcionites were followers of the second century theologian Marcion. Their beliefs were diametrically opposed to those of the Ebionites. They rejected Judaism, saw Jesus as fully divine and not really human, were followers of the Apostle Paul, and were quite hostile to the Old Testament God, Yahweh. Marcion established churches in Asia Minor where his churches thrived for centuries. Marcion saw the Old Testament God and the God of Jesus as being radically different. And so he believed there were two gods, the inferior wrathful God of the Hebrew scriptures who created the world and the superior God of love and mercy who sent Jesus who came to save the people of the world from the wrathful Old Testament God. Marcion was very aware of the contradictions between the teachings of Jesus, such as love your enemies, and the directives of Yahweh, for example, telling Joshua to kill every man, woman, child, and animal in the land of Canaan. Marcion was the first to devise the canon of scripture. It contained 10 of Paul's letters, not 1st and 2nd Timothy or Titus, and a gospel similar to Luke and the whole Old Testament was excluded. Another group of early Christians were known as Gnostics. The term Gnosis refers to knowledge. Gnostics believed that salvation came from having a secret self-knowledge. That is to say, knowledge of who we are, where we come from, and knowledge about the physical and spiritual worlds. They believed this material world was a world of imprisonment. The goal is for our divinity, spirit, to escape the evil, material, physical world of matter. In 1945, Gnostic documents were uncovered in Egypt near the village of Nag Hammadi. These documents are now known as the Nag Hammadi Library. This was a tremendous archaeological discovery that has given much more information about Gnostic Christians. The writings themselves were produced in the late 4th century but were believed to have been originally written in the second century or earlier. The writings contain 52 treatises and include several gospels and apocalypses. Very important event that greatly contributed to the growth of Christianity was the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine to Christianity in the early fourth century. Prior to this, Christianity grew very slowly. 
At the end of the second century, Christians made up perhaps 2-3% of the empire. At the beginning of the fourth century, they made up perhaps 5 or 7%. Everything changed with the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine to Christianity. At the end of the fourth century, almost half the empire called themselves Christian. Constantine convened and financed a Christian council in 325 that met in the city of Nicaea. One of the outcomes of this council was the writings of a creed, the Nicene Creed. Remarkably to me, the creed contains none of the reported teachings of Jesus. Christianity had become a religion about Jesus rather than the religion of Jesus. Other ecumenical councils were convened between 381 and 787. Most of these councils primarily dealt with the nature of Jesus, that is, how human and how divine he was. The Trinity was a major area of dispute. Although the beliefs and concepts of the Nicene Creed would not seem unusual to Christians today, they were issues that were highly debated and very controversial at that time. Remember that the Ebionites saw Jesus as fully human and not divine. The Marcionites saw Jesus as fully divine and not human. Jesus Christ's essence continued to be a topic of debate even after the Council of Nicaea. The controversies primarily re, uh, around the issue, or revolved around the issue of a trinity. It must re be remembered that the delegates to the Council of Nicaea could not consult their New Testament to answer these questions. There was no New Testament. Uh, even if they did have a copy of our New Testament, there's no exposition of this concept of a trinity by Jesus, by Paul, or any writer in the New Testament. The only passage in the New Testament that mentions a trinity is 1 John 5, 7, 8. In the New Revised Standard Version, it stated, there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. The King James Version of these two verses is, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. These verses were believed to have been expanded by a scribe at a much later date to support a Trinitarian doctrine. It's not found in any Greek manuscript until the 11th century. Probably the first to elaborate a doctrine of God as being three in one was the Christian apologist uh, Athenagoras in the second century. In the early Christian churches, various writings were used by various churches as scripture. Eventually, both Christians and the Jews sought to establish the canon, that is, a fixed set of writings that were not only authoritative, as scripture was thought to be, but also correct in its teachings and of special significance. Thus, the term canon is more restrictive than the term scripture. At the end of the second century, Christians began to consider what was in the Old Testament canon, and this continued to be debated into the fifth century. It was not until the 4th century that lists of Christian writings were formulated that were considered canonical. Thus, during the first four centuries of Christianity, there were various scriptures, but no canon. However, in the earliest centuries, Christianity did not center on scriptures. 
is centered on Jesus Christ, most known by oral traditions of his words and deeds. There's no evidence of anything being written about him until decades after his death, and these writings were likely not by eyewitnesses. There were several canons that were proposed in early Christianity. The list of 27 books that we currently have in our New Testament is believed to have come from Athanasius, who lived from 300 to 375. In order to be considered for canonicity, writings needed to be in agreement with what the church took to be apostolic teaching, needed to be written during the earliest times, and needed to conform to what the church felt was proper teaching. So true belief does not come from scripture, it precedes it. There is not a conception that scripture was the sole source of authoritative teaching. There was no claim in the ancient church that canonical documents were uniquely or exclusively inspired. Many people believe today that something's correct because it is found in the Bible. However, writings were put in the Bible in the first place because it was voted on as being correct teaching. For decades, Christianity was based on the teachings and beliefs about Jesus that were passed on orally. Even after the teachings were written down in various writings, most people did not have access to these writings. Even after a canon of scripture was established, most people had no access to it. In order to get a copy of a Bible, one needed to obtain a handwritten copy from a scribe, and so obviously written materials were hard to come by. Few people could read anyways. During the medieval period, the 5th to the 15th centuries, monasteries were havens of literacy and learning. They were centers for the production of Bibles. A main occupation in monasteries was copying manuscripts. In this process, inadvertent errors did occur, although this appeared to be more of a problem in the earliest years of Christianity when it was non-professionals who were doing the copying. Unfortunately, later professional scribes inadvertently copied earlier errors. Also knowing that there were earlier copying errors, scribes also intentionally made changes to manuscripts, thinking they were correcting earlier mistakes. They made attempts to frequently to correct words or passages that did not reflect what was known as correct belief. One of the most important inventions of the history of mankind was the invention of the printing press. Johannes Gutenberg developed a new type of printing press which brought printing to Europe. Now, for the first time, books could be mass-produced. And now, for the first time, books became available to the general public. Gutenberg published a two-volume version of the Latin Vulgate Bible in 1455. Now people could read the Bible rather than just hear portions recited at a mass. However, the Bible was available only in Latin, not the common languages of the masses. William Tyndale, uh, 1492 to 1536, was a skilled linguist, fluent in eight languages, who studied at Oxford and then Cambridge. He decided to translate the Bible into English. He worked from the original Hebrew and Greek versions rather than the Latin Vulgate. The first edition of the New Testament was printed in 1526, the Pentateuch and Psalms in 1530, and Jonah in 1531. Job through Second Chronicles was in the process of being translated at the time of Tyndale's death. 
Because the 1408 constitutions of Oxford strictly forbade the translation of the Bible into native tongues, Tyndale was strangled while tied to a stake. His dead body was then burned. His last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. His prayer was answered. In 1537, Henry VIII allowed the English Bible to be distributed. Although Tyndale and others felt that individuals should be able to read the Bible on their own, others in the church felt the teachings of the Bible were too obscure for uneducated people to elucidate, and that it would therefore require theologically educated individuals, which were priests, to explain the teachings of the Bible. The Bible's now been translated into 2,043 of the world's 6,500 languages. It has been estimated that there have been around 300 English translations of the Bible, and ideology does play a role in the different versions. I grew up believing the Bible was the one and only Word of God. I've learned that the Bible is a collection of writings that did not come together until the fourth century. Politics was a significant issue in the decisions of what scriptures to include in the canon and which scriptures to leave out. Politics continued to play a role in the copying of manuscripts by scribes, and politics continued to play a role when the biblical literature was translated into various languages. Next week, I'll be presenting information from the book Evolution and Syncretism of Religion. Many people believe that religion began when God revealed himself to human beings at the time of their creation, several thousand years ago. However, we now know that, in fact, the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. With this knowledge in mind, how did religion begin and develop? And in particular, how did Judaism and Christianity begin and evolve and how did other religions and cultures influence those two religions? Uh, that's what I'll present next week, and I hope you're able to join me next week for that. And I thank you for your attention today. This has been Conversations, a Park Church podcast. Tune in each week for brief, meaningful study that brings us closer to God, to each other, and to our Christian faith. Join Park Church for Worship on Sunday mornings in downtown Grand Rapids at 10.30 a.m. and for adult study throughout the year as announced. Blessings to you, and we hope you'll join us again soon.